On January 20th, 1993, the newly elected president of the United States, Bill Clinton, read a letter he found in the Oval Office from the man that he had defeated, George Bush Sr. The letter read, Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. This letter is a prime example of what Americans refer to as the peaceful transfer of power. The peaceful transfer of power is a fundamental aspect of American democracy, and I would argue a fundamental aspect of every democracy. It ensures stability, continuity, and legitimacy in the country's new governance. The outgoing administration cooperates with the incoming administration to facilitate a smooth transition of power, maintaining national security, upholding the rule of law, and enabling the new administration to effectively govern from one day to the next. George Bush Sr.'s note to his rival and his successor is a tangible expression of this concept. Today's passage represents what I believe is Samuel's attempt at a peaceful transfer of power in the nation of Israel. Consider how the ESV expository commentator or commentary explains it. It says chapter 12, quote, records a pivotal event in the covenantal history of Israel. As Samuel demits office as a judge, He brings to an end the old order, which yields to a newly established monarchy. However, Samuel's speech is far from a farewell address, for he does not withdraw from public affairs, but remains the Lord's prophetic ambassador to the court of Saul. And he will intervene in significant ways in subsequent events. In this transitional discourse, Samuel surveys the history of the covenant relationship between the Lord and Israel. But his primary concern is to ensure continuing recognition of the covenant bond in this new phase of the constitutional affairs of the nation. Noting that last point, it is at this point of transition as Samuel transfers the power of his leadership to Saul, Samuel is concerned primarily concerned with the relationship between God and his people. More specifically, he is focused on the grace of God and the response of God's people to his graciousness. With that in mind, let's go to point number one, the grace of a faithful leader, verses one through five. In this section, Samuel establishes his own faithfulness. And because he does, Samuel is able to both indicate God's graciousness to his people and to prepare 
God's people for his questioning of their faithfulness. Samuel has faithfully discharged his duties as judge. He says, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Samuel, before weighing Israel in the balance, weighs himself. And he speaks first to the the recent past where he has provided a king for the people. But not only had Samuel put a king in place, he had also put his own sons in their place. Note that the sons of Samuel, who were going to be leaders in Israel, are now with the people and not over the people. And so we see that Samuel has been faithful in recent events. But what is true currently is also true in the past. Samuel had been faithful, and he draws this to the attention of the people. He says, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Then dramatically, Samuel puts the question to the people. He says, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And so before the God of Israel and before the King of Israel, Samuel invites the scrutiny of the people. But it's the faithfulness of Samuel, walking with integrity, leading with godliness. That is what Israel testifies to. You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. So before the Lord and before the king, Israel proclaims that Samuel has been faithful. Samuel has not deviated from God's expectations of a spiritual and civil leader. He has not exploited anyone. He has not victimized anyone. He has not abused anyone. With unanimous consent, the people indicate that Samuel is beyond reproach. What a grace it is to have faithful, godly leaders. What a grace that is. And this is true in regards to spiritual things, but this is also true in regards to civil or political things. And so we might ask the question this morning, how should we as Christians in Canadian, how should we think about our leader, Justin Trudeau? I doubt there is anyone here who would suggest that he is a godly leader. On sanctity of life issues, whether that be abortion or assisted suicide, I think it could be argued he may be the worst leader that our country has had. Perhaps the same could be said from a biblical perspective on issues of human sexuality and gender. Further, he is demonstrably lacking in integrity. Twice already, Canada's Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner has found the Prime Minister violated ethics rules. So what are we to do as Christians in Canada? Well, understand that there are many things that you as a Christian civilian can do in this country. And I would encourage you to do them. 
There are many things, many paths available to you. If you prefer a certain leader or you have displeasure with another leader, and I encourage you to do them, to vote, to sign petitions, to get involved, to attend lawful protests. But there's one thing the Bible makes explicitly clear that we should do in regards to our leaders. We should pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 5 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In light of that, in light of our passage, which deals with a godly, faithful leader, I decided that we could take a few minutes in the middle of my sermon to pray for our leader. I think that would be appropriate. I would ask you to join me in prayer. Blessed Father, this Christmas season, we thank you that to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We thank you that the increase of his government, there shall be no end. The increase of his peace, there shall be no end. And then we pray for patient perseverance until the full glory of that prophecy is experienced. And in the meantime, we know and we are grateful that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. You turn it wherever you will. We pray, therefore, for our prime minister. We pray that you would enable him and strengthen him for his task. We thank you for the ways in which he has governed in a godly and honorable way but we pray that he would do righteousness and that he would pursue justice. We pray that you would cause him to discharge his duties in accordance with your will and in accordance with your revelation. And we pray that you would thwart any plan and any action across this country that disregards and dishonors you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God had been gracious to Israel in giving them a faithful leader. But God had also been gracious to Israel in doing and performing great deeds. That's our second point, the grace of great deeds, verses 6 through 19. God has graciously done great deeds for his people. He delivered them. He established them. And yet their response was unfaithfulness. And so in this moment, he shows them yet another great deed of power and looks to them to respond appropriately. Samuel tips his hand when he begins this portion of his admonishment. He tips his hand by mentioning Moses and Aaron because it is well known that God used Moses and Aaron as his primary agents in the gracious deliverance of his people from Egypt. Samuel will 
plead with Israel that they might relate to God as faithful covenant people. And he does this by presenting evidence. Evidence concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. The first great deed is God's grace towards his people in their deliverance from Egypt. And it's interesting. Samuel notes the response of God's people to his gracious deliverance. They forgot the Lord their God. Samuel has more examples to illustrate this point, that God was gracious, but Israel was not faithful. The next group of great deeds of God's grace towards his people was their deliverance from their enemies and their establishment in the promised land. This was during the time of the judges, including during Samuel's judgeship. And so Samuel recounts how Sisera in Judges 4 how the Philistines in Judges 3, 10, and 13, and how the king of Moab in Judges 3 all oppressed Israel. But Samuel reminds Israel that God, having heard the cries of his people, raises up judges to deliver them. He raises up Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and even himself. And Samuel's point is this, God has been gracious to Israel. God has been gracious to you and giving you a faithful leader like myself. God has been gracious to your fathers in delivering them out of Egypt. God has been gracious to Israel in delivering them from their enemies and establishing them in their promised land. And yet he makes note of Israel's response, unfaithfulness. But there's a bit of a difference between the past and the present. You see, in the past, though Israel had been unfaithful, Samuel notes that they repented and returned to the Lord. But that's not what has happened in the last few chapters. Instead of repenting and returning, the people of Israel, when uh, facing the oppression of Nahash, they don't repent or return. They demand a king. No, but a king shall reign over us. They demand this when the Lord, their God, was in fact their king. And so their unfaithfulness is on par with the unfaithfulness that Israel demonstrated in the time of the Exodus when God graciously saved them and they had a calf of gold made that they could worship. And the unfaithfulness of Israel now is on par with the unfaithfulness of Israel during the time of the judges who after having been delivered, they continued to worship idols and find themselves in trouble again. But at least in those times, they repented and returned to the Lord. Let's pause for a moment and and make an application this morning in regards to repentance. Puritan Thomas Brooks said that true repentance is a continued spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing. True repentance is a continued spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing. See, brothers and sisters, as creatures who fell in Adam, we sin. And we will continue to sin until we die or Christ returns. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
So we will continue to sin and thus we must continue to repent. Our lives should be a spring of repentance where the flow of godly sorrow does not cease until our sinning ceases. And that is true for every believer. It's true now every bit as much as it was true when you first came to faith in Christ. To follow Christ means to repent. Jesus himself said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1, 14. To repent is to acknowledge that one's thoughts and words and actions are sinful and thus grievous to God. To repent is to be sorrowful for one's sin. To repent is to make a decision to break with sin. And to believe, to believe is to acknowledge and embrace and to delight in who Jesus is and what Jesus did to save us. What did he do to save us? He died for our sin. He paid the penalty for sin that our sins deserve. He died in our place and then he came back from the dead in a powerful resurrection. And he promises to those who repent and believe that he will forgive their sins, reconcile them to God and give them eternal life. Our life with Christ begins and continues with repentance. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin, You've never believed in Christ. You've never entrusted yourself to his work. You should do that right now. Because this is the only way we are saved. All of us, all of us here need to be people who repent of sin wherever and whenever we find it. We see that God has been gracious to Israel. He's been gracious through great deeds of deliverance, saving them from their enemies. He's been gracious through great deeds of establishing them in the promised land. And then we see in verses 15 and 16 where Samuel is heading in this admonishment where he transfers the power. The aim of this admonition is that Israel's response to God's grace should be one of faithfulness. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. It will be well. Now, Samuel tells the people Not only has God done great things for you, but he's about to do a great thing. He mentions that it's the day of the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest took place in Israel's dry season in May and June. It was a time of almost complete drought. And Samuel requests that the Lord sends thunder and rain. And that this would be a sign of the people's wickedness and a sign of their unfaithfulness and a sign of how they have improperly responded to God's grace. And so Samuel calls upon the Lord, and thunder and rain are sent, and the people are afraid. 
And this gets Samuel to the point where he can bring the exhortation to call upon God's people to be faithful. But before we get there, can we take a moment to make another quick application? I want to consider Samuel's statement, it will be well. It will be well. If you do these things, if you're faithful, it will be well. And we need to address this lest we fall into the trap of believing some form of the prosperity gospel, some way of thinking that things will always be health and wealth for God's people. We need to understand that what the New Testament says about that and consider our own posture in regards to the ups and downs of our walk of faith in Christ. Understand that Samuel's statement, even in his own time, was conditional. It will be well if you serve the Lord, if you fear the Lord, if you obey the Lord. Well, when we get to the New Covenant in New Testament times, we find that this conditional promise is clarified and expanded. First of all, we need to understand that The New Testament teaches every believer will experience difficulties. From the mouth of Jesus and the apostles, we learn that in this world, we will have tribulation. John 16, 33. We're taught to not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening. 1 Peter 4, 12. We will have difficulties. We will have troubles. We will have trials. So how should we think about this? What should be our posture to these ups and downs and the roller coaster of our life as Christians? Well, author Christopher Watkin, in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, I think is helpful. Listen to what he writes about our posture as Christians. He says, a Christian will be neither a pessimistic Eeyore nor a utopian Tigger. In fact, she is both more pessimistic than the pessimist and more utopian than the utopian. She is more pessimistic than the pessimist because she recognizes that the sin at the heart of the human problem cannot be expunged by any education, social reform, cash injection, or medical intervention. And yet she is more utopian than utopian because she believes in the radical transformation of the human heart begun in this life and completed in the next. She has a dream. She believes in a reality without mourning, crying and pain. Yes, a reality without death where every tear will be wiped from the eyes of those who belong to Christ. And then he says this, and I think this lays out what the posture of a Christian should be in life. Her multi-lens biblical anthropology gives her a sober optimism, a realistic romanticism, a critical idealism. I believe this is the posture a Christian should take. We should have sober optimism. We should have a realistic romanticism, a critical idealism. We see this posture in the beloved hymn, It Is Well, which recognizes we will have both good times and bad times and yet still can sing, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, 
When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. I believe this is the posture we should have as Christians. Let us finish this morning considering the final exhortation of Samuel, the final exhortation which, I hope you noticed, is the basis for the benediction we use during this sermon series. We see it as our third point, a proper response to grace, verses 20 through 25. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis, in referring to these last five verses, says that Samuel uses the occasion to unleash his full prophetic arsenal. He proclaims stern warnings, called forth portents from nature, and issues one of the most sobering assessments of Israel's past, present, and future found in biblical Hebrew narrative. And this unleashing of his full prophetic arsenal has a point. And his point is to call God's people to respond to God's grace with faithfulness. Respond to God's grace by being faithful. Samuel instructs God's people not to be afraid, but to serve the Lord with all the heart, to not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, but to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all their heart, to consider what great things that God has done for them. And this, I believe, is our main takeaway this morning. God calls us to be faithful. God calls each one of us. God calls you as a believer in the new covenant era. He calls you to be faithful. And one of the most important things we must understand as we endeavor to be faithful is that we are to pursue faithfulness and walk in faithfulness from grace, not for grace. We are to walk in faithfulness and pursue faithfulness from grace, not for grace. One of the greatest ways we misread Scripture and one of the greatest ways we err in our living out of the Christian faith is that we try to live faithfully for grace instead of from grace. Brothers and sisters, if you receiving the grace of God depends on your faithfulness, you're not going to get any, nor will I. Further, that is totally contrary to what grace means. It means the favor of God which you do not merit. Samuel brings up the Exodus because the Exodus is paradigmatic for God's people in every age in terms of how he works. Did God sit back and say, Israel, in your slavery, if you will be faithful, I will come and save you. That's not what he did. He poured out his grace on his people and saved them. And then he said, be faithful, be obedient. Here's laws in which you should walk. And this was true in the time of judges. We saw it this morning 
if you were paying attention, we saw it as we celebrated communion. You see, we take the emblems first. We take in the emblem of Christ's body. We take in the emblem of his blood in the cup. We do that because those things have already happened. That grace has already been poured out. And the last prayer of communion is this. We humbly ask you, O Heavenly Father, to assist us with your grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as you have prepared for us to walk in. We're not faithful for grace. We're faithful from grace. God's grace precedes our faithfulness. That's the only way for it to work. I've got time to look at one example of this in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. Paul writes, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So track with what Paul's saying here. He says that he prays that God's people would be made worthy of God's calling, that God's people would fulfill every resolve for good, that God's people would fulfill every work of faith. That is, Paul prays that God's people would be faithful. Why does he pray that? He prays that so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. But the how is important. How are God's people to achieve this faithfulness? They are to do so according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's according to grace that we pursue faithfulness. It's according to grace that we endeavor to be faithful and to be made worthy of what we've been called into. It is from grace that we endeavor to be faithful. We don't pursue faithfulness for grace. We pursue faithfulness from grace. So as we consider Samuel's admonishment, as he transfers the power of leadership to Saul, as we consider the very point of this episode that is the pinnacle of his prophetic ministry, as we see that he calls God's people to respond to God's grace with faithfulness, understand this morning, brothers and sisters, that we, we are called to look upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ, And to respond from that grace with grace-motivated, grace-fueled, and grace-empowered faithfulness. We respond from grace, not for grace. May this be so in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Father God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to apply it to our lives. Specifically, Father God, I pray that you would help us to understand that as those who have repented of our sin and put our faith and trust in Christ, that we are called to be faithful. 
but I pray that you would help us to understand we are not called to faithfulness for grace, but from grace. I pray that you would help us to look upon the glorious grace that you demonstrated in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, that we would look on it and behold it and meditate on it and worship in light of it. And from that grace, we would be faithful. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.